I'm so happy to be uh, in Sydney, and I'm, I just want to disclose to you, can we have the house lights up a little bit more so I can see people's faces? I want to disclose to you that I'm, I'm happy and a little nervous because uh, I'm ecstatically happy because this is such an important venue, such an important event for the Sydney Opera House with all its gravitas to um, be the platform for this important discussion means a lot um, in terms of taking seriously women's issues and wither feminism. And also it's just unbelievably exciting for me to be sharing the podium with some of my personal heroines. Um, but I also am really excited to be doing what I'm about to do in Sydney because what I'm about to do is say things I've really never said in public but that really need to be said, and it's kind of taking a leap of faith. Um, but I know from my experience with Australian women that this is the place to do it, because in my many years of coming back to Australia and New Zealand, um, I find that women in this part of the world and men are so ready to grapple with uh, the really hard questions and not afraid of being um, really, really honest about taking a look at what we need to take a look at. Um, so I, I believe that I'm in the right place for this. Um, and I'm just going to plunge in. I mean, what I'm going to be talking about today is kind of uh, digging out where the theoretical inheritance of feminism kind of has led us in a barren place um, and how we can go a little bit further back to the, what I'm going to argue is the true origins of Western feminism in order to um, kind of move past this plateau, this kind of uh, uh, bleak place where um, the theory is a little worn out and the energy is a little flat and the ideas are a little stale um, in order to really uh, keep us in harmony with our best selves but also have feminism, Western feminism, be um, as it should be, in alignment with this great movement happening all over the world, this incredible movement for democracy and human rights and freedom, um, as well as in alignment with the other incredible feminisms that are emerging around the world, which I'm sure Jermaine uh, Greer will speak a lot more about later in the afternoon. So here we go. The So What Feminism Plateau is familiar to us, at least in the West, Forty years after the defining moments of the second wave, the standstill is obvious. Western women are stuck in a new social role that is scarcely evolving, populating middle management and pink-collar ghettos. A small fraction of elite women have fabulous careers, supported by low-wage childcare and domestic work of other women. Women remain 15% of bylines and subjects in major news media. They run no more than 5% of Fortune 500 companies and so on. The wage gap has narrowed a few points, but men still out earn women by about 20 percentage points for the same work. Um, men do a few hours more domestic wor work a week now than they used to. Abortion rights are secure in most Western countries, but in some, like mine, under siege once again. Um, a lot of European countries have daycare and family leave, not the US. But rape and sexual harassment are almost never prosecuted successfully. About 6 to 12% of reported rapes in the US and the UK ever get to trial at all. Data for anorexia and bulimia are flat. Um, and interest in what has become known, ironically, as the F word um, is, is not uh, growing. Many young women report that the feminist movement seems a relic of their mother's era. Humorless, sexless, hostile to men. Um, not mentoring them in young women's organizations. Most women support the concept of equal rights, but a new generation is disempowered by lack of strong institutions, a clear agenda, and a strong claim on making feminism their own, even though there's a lot of cool activity going on in you know, subcultures like websites, bust, uh, bitch in the United States, feministing your subculture. Um, but there's this kind of lack of a great push forward. Then there's women's 
don't worry, it starts out bleak, but it gets much happier. We'll get there. <laughs> I can feel you going, wait, wait, no. Um, then there's women's malaise in the West in general. In 2009, sociologist Marcus Buckingham reported that in the 40 years since second wave feminism began, women in the West who, quote, have it all, are becoming less satisfied. Um, and I can say from my, you know, perch in New York, uh, there's some truth to this, that a lot of women I know, this may be less true in, in Australia, I hope so, but a lot of women I know who sort of have the feminist dream, you know, have it all, have the children, have the career, have sort of everything that Western feminism was supposed to give us, um, still sometimes wake up and think, is this all there is? Surely there's something more. So I'm going to argue that the stasis we're at right now has to do with actually a flaw in how we intellectually inherited Western feminism. Um, what most of us aren't raised to know is that the, the cultural frame around Western feminism isn't a universal frame. It's not the only way feminism could have come to us intellectually. It came this way because of a couple of very specific kind of accidents of intellectual history. And that um, in understanding those accidents, it means we can begin to understand uh, the nature of our intellectual heritage in the West so that we can reject what is not working and reclaim what can work better. And this is what I mean. I'm going to be very specific. Um, our Western feminism, I'm using this in quotation marks always, uh, because my whole point is that it is not universal, it's a very specific thing, descends from three main sources, and they're not in easy alliance with each other. One of them is the 19th century ideal of what the poet Coventry Patmore called the angel in the house. The second, believe it or not, is existentialism in the middle of the 20th century. And the last one, uh, since about the 70s, is advanced consumer capitalism. And these turn out kind of to suck as intellectual antecedents for a movement as important and precious and transformative as feminism. They have built-in limitations. Um, and these are especially evident over time. So now I'm going to take you back very briefly into a little bit of intellectual history. Now, modern Western feminism that we inherit was codified largely by middle-class white women reformers, a lot of them suffragists in Britain, and then their formulations crossed the Atlantic and, and also crossed, you know, over to here. Um, these women, uh, though they struggled against it, were kind of submerged in this angel in the house ideology. Women's influence was to be emotional, for instance, not logical or analytical. They were to create a separate sphere apart from the rigors of the male world. They were higher, purer, and less sexual than men. And their role was to be moral judges, to keep um, society and communities in order. So not surprisingly, and this completely blew my mind when I started studying the 19th century in a lot more depth, recently as a graduate student, I've gone back to school and there's, you know, there it is, the origins of, of Western feminism. Um, to some extent, we'll get to the true origins later. It's that, it's not surprising that these women made their claims for freedom in this language and within this framework. Of course, that's the only access to a voice that they had. But it meant that they had to, for instance, make the case that getting the vote would elevate uh, women uh, and society in general. Um, they had to showcase female sexual victimization at the hands of men but really never talk about female sexual agency or desire as a way to push for laws to address the sexual and legal double standard and to reform divorce and property law. And they focused on the emotions felt by victims of male oppression and made their case in terms to, of emotional appeals for justice. And this was successful um, at these critical points throughout the 19th century this worked. They really did reform marriage laws. They reformed divorce laws. They, you know, finally, in the 1919 and 1920, got women the vote. Um, they had a lot of successes along the way. So what you see is this incredibly formative thing that this kind of discourse works to get women power, right? 
but it's a really, really, really double-edged sword. Okay, are you all with me? All right. Okay, good. I'm, I'm sort of chunking tons of theory on your heads, but I, I know that uh, we, will, we will get through the history to, to the moment, and you'll see why it's so important to look back at this. So the trouble is that this way of pushing for equality for women has been the template that we inherit, and it's not so great for long-term advances into a very, very different future that we're at now. It leads to what I've called elsewhere a tendency to withdraw into what I called a long time ago victim feminism. And that doesn't mean not showcasing women's victimization or fighting against it, but it does mean not getting stuck on foregrounding our victimization at the expense of identifying our strengths and resources and using them. Um, it tends to uh, you know, manifest in uh, an intellectual reluctance to aggregate or enumerate women's real strengths, a reluctance to soil one's hands in Victorian terms with the male materials of money or of media or hardball legislative pressure. It leads us with a tendency for fe Western feminism to be judgmental of other women's choices. I think you ran into some of this. I run, you know, we all run into it periodically. Um, excluding out many definitions of feminism, for instance, in the United States, the sisterhood has excluded out women who have different um, backgrounds or policy goals, political backgrounds or policy goals from ours. Women in the military, conservative women, uh, pro-life women, all of whom may feel a strong commitment to women's rights, um, but have you know, different policy outcomes. And it can lead to kind of this reflex of organizational paralysis as groups fetishize consensus, which could also be called showing no leadership, this is a joke. Um, <laughs> and making sure everyone feels warm and fuzzy while getting absolutely nothing done. This is my particular bet noir. Which is destined to cripple any action it arises out of and undermine any group historically. It has led to feminism. When I say feminism for shorthand, I mean Western feminism. Um, but I'll, I can say it every time if you wish, but it'll be pretty clear that this is Western feminism I'm talking about. Being so afraid of offending anyone within its own subculture that one feels one can't say, if one can't say, as a fill-in, you know, XXXX, one has no right to speak, ironically recapitulating the voicelessness of the original angel in the house and ensuring a bland, often ensuring a bland intellectually static discourse. It's it's this angel in the house inheritance has led to Discomfort with conflict itself. I mean, one reason I adore Germaine Greer, you know, just as an aside, I mean, I just had this kind of feeling backstage of just complete happiness, um, just see, witnessing her and being in her presence, and it's not like some weird fetishy thing. It's that, um, I mean, it may be, but I don't intend it to be. Uh, it's, it's that she um, is not, she's like not afraid of conflict. You know, she's not afraid of speaking her, Truth speaking her perspective, um, she's not um, m mindful of the Victorian inhibitions that are supposed to be what nice women do in feminism or outside of feminism, which is very, very liberating. Um, but anyway, uh, it, okay, it is comfort with conflict, and it's led to a kind of passivity in many Western democracies, where a tradition of seeing oneself at the mercy of a powerful authority leads women in countries such as Britain and Australia that have women's rights officers, or members of EU countries in general, to tend to leave the job of pushing for more to governmental bodies. And so then, um, you know, a grassroots activism or grassroots um, hardcore politics pushing the envelope uh, can often wither away. It's left women ill-prepared to do what's absolutely necessary to push through this stalemate at this moment, to field their own candidates, run for office themselves, raise their own money, start their own institutions, not dependent on government largesse that can be slashed at a moment's notice, or even, you know, feminist mass approval, to draft their own laws and inaugurate their own media. Round of applause. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, there's, <laughs> I mean, this, you get why this is terrifying for me. It's like I'm, I'm waiting for all my mothers and grandmothers to sort of exile me, but um, I'm sure we'll 
we'll, we'll have a productive back and forth. The Contagious Diseases Acts were, I think, a formative moment, um, though few of us know about them. So what this was, was in the mid-19th century, and I knew nothing about this till I studied it, but it's so huge. Women, um, there were these laws passed to keep syphilis out of the British Army. And so what happened was, undercover police officers were sent to kidnap women who looked like they might be sexually active or prostitutes, but at that time prostitution was so loosely defined that any woman could be dragged off the street if she looked sexual, right? Or had any sexual experience, or just because he wanted to. And then they were um, vaginally uh, examined by strangers against their will and, and held in lock hospitals for up to nine months to um, cure them of any venereal diseases they might have. So the point is, this was terrifying, and women across Britain were being swept up by, in such numbers that the guy who was running this initiative said that when they brought this uh, effort to London, they would need 12 full-sized hospitals to deal with all the women they would be abducting and holding against their will. So you can see why I think that, now that I know a lot more about this, this was a trauma in Western women that has descended to us in Western feminism. Because um, I do think traumas kind of do descend, you know, like in any family, you, you get traumatized and you inherit it down generations. Because Western feminism now is, like, how do you fight this? You have to be respectable, right? You have to show that you're a good girl, you're a nice girl, you're a nice woman. You've never had any sexual feelings uh, or sexual agency. And so it has led to this kind of weird consensus in some kinds of feminism, which is why I love the slut walk, um, that it, you're not kind of allowed to acknowledge sexual desire or sexual agency in the, because it might expose you to uh, losing protection from the state. It's a very, very interesting reflex. And I, I think, you know, just some examples. When I um, was looking at the Assange rape transcripts and I was really worried about what was going on with that, I pointed out that both the transcripts showed some moments of sexual agency and initiative and some of sexual resistance. So there were yeses and there were noes. And my view is, you have to respect, like just because someone says yes doesn't mean they're not allowed to say no. And this is a really, really important thing to grapple with right now because rape cases increasingly are date rapes that result after people connect online. And so often, like, very significant numbers, increasingly it's young women who know their assailant and who did want to do some things before they got to the point of not wanting to do other things. So this is really important to grapple with. Rape uh, prosecution has to evolve so that it is just as serious, you know, if you've raped a woman after she's done this or that with you, um, than if she's a nun, right? But both rape prosecution and certain kinds of feminism are stuck in this mindset that you can't allow any discussion of yes and no, or else it will undermine the no. And so I was roundly attacked by the feminist sisterhood in America for looking at where the yeses were um, and then looking at where the noes were because they had this very black and white view. It has to be all victimization throughout the whole thing in order to be taking rape seriously. And I would say that that position actually doesn't take rape seriously. Um, but the point is that there wasn't a nuanced discussion about it, that, there, that the truisms that descend to us from the 19th century keep these polarized, non-nuanced positions in feminism when, we're, when women are moving into more and more nuanced situations in which feminism and the law have to evolve to protect their rights as well as to respect their um, their sexual initiative and sexual agency. Um, so I think that dates from the, uh, the fight against the Contagious Diseases Acts, where you know, if, you, if you acknowledge that you were sexual at all, the state would not protect you. So there's a second not great intellectual antecedent that we have for feminism, which is existentialism. Can you guys handle the second bad one? I mean, okay. <laughs> it gets, it really, I promise it gets happy. Um, it, it descends, Western feminism also descends in the US, and largely also, I think, in Australia, from 
the influence of the 1949 book by Simone de Beauvoir, The Second Sex. And Betty Friedan's 1963 bestseller, The Feminine Mystique, drew on that heavily. So French existentialism is a weird and unhelpful philosophy <laughs> for Western feminism <laughs> to descend from. <laughs> um, it's born from the ravages of World War II. It's deeply cynical, skeptical, and individualistic, and it posits the self and personal choice as the measure of life's entire meaning. It defines the self in isolation from the world of families, social roles, mutual obligations, spirituality, and concern for one's children's future. It was this fierce individualism that led to Beauvoir to her radical for the time notion that women too had autonomous selves, not to be defined by others. But existentialism's focus on personal choice at the expense of everything else led us into the feminist, led us in the feminist West down a perilous path. So there was a third antecedent um, that I should mention, though it's more localized, um, and that's Marxism. And British feminism also emerged for working-class women out of socialism and the labor movement. And in America, the radical left in the 60s were showing their street cred by reading Marx and Mao and imitating revolutionary tacticians, such as Che Guevara and, and reading Franz Fanon. So this has led to some great benefits. The most effective action in Britain, for instance, for women, and I'm sure in Australia too, has been labor-led action. But it's also led to some absurdities, in the US especially, as radical women keep hoping for some vague end capitalism while failing to take responsibility for drawing up strategies for, the re for reform for the world that we're in now. And failing to note that left totalitarian regimes are just as good at oppressing women um, as any. That women are not freer in Beijing than in Stockholm. And that democratic capitalism with a strong social welfare net has created the most egalitarian societies in history. So that, too, tends to lead uh, Western women to not want to touch the master's tools, because the master's tools, money, the media, and the ballot box, um, you know, are defined as kind of untouchable by good Marxists. So now back to, like, the, the legacy of Betty Friedan. She popularized um, existentialism for the masses, and she called it the problem that has no name as women with advanced degrees questioned their roles while they loaded laundry. Each suburban wife struggled with it alone, she wrote, as she made the beds, shopped for groceries. She was afraid to ask even of herself, is this all? So here you get these, like, parents, these intellectual parents of Western feminism. And you see why they're kind of inadequate for this incredible moment. Um, because now, Western feminism is usually articulated as, uh, you know, plus let's add, I'm sorry, the great consumer push of post-war advanced capitalism and all those products sought consumers who are obsessed with individual choice. So this material wave swept up women and men, but at that point both genders had freedom redefined as freedom to consume. And personal choice was everything. Um, and then for women, this push was also labeled feminism in some ways. So now, second wave feminism is usually expressed as being about individualistic choices. The personal is political, rather than about any other ideals. Western women became really good at identifying what was crying out in our souls and kicking away the hindrances to self-fulfillment, and that had value. But unfortunately, a message of self-assertion at all costs dovetailed with messages about consumer capitalism. So by the 1970s to now, our culture told both genders that individual expression was paramount, but defined that often for women as the right to choose an interesting career, a high-status mate, the right handbag or vacation, the perfect family size, and sort of mushed together this general, unfulfillable search for personal perfection. This focus has led to so many, quote, feminist discussions I'm asked to join that are really lifestyle discussions. Should women have facelifts? Um, what about hiring nannies? You know, what about stay-at-home moms versus working moms? Frankly, if I am, as a passionate feminist, as bored as this by two decades of participating in such discussions, <laughs> it is no surprise that everyone else is as well. 
Lifestyle choices are not really that meaningful beyond themselves if no bigger questions are being asked. So, phew, given that history, is it any wonder now that so many Western women report a sense of being unfulfilled, even though they've acted on the Western feminist promise, and is it any wonder that so many young women are looking at this and thinking, I don't know, you know, there's, there's something not completely compelling there. So, here, now we get to the happy part. And thank you for, you know, hanging in there with all of that, you know, bitter, harsh analysis. The happy part is this. We have another intellectual antecedent, but it's buried, but it's the right one, and it's incredibly joyful. And I realized in writing this essay why for 26 years or however long it's been since I was a baby feminist and first published The Beauty Myth, why I've always felt kind of out of sync with a lot of feminism. And this is why. But it's because I was responding to a different intellectual tradition and adhering to a different intellectual tradition, um, which is not Victorian, and it's not Marxist, and it's not advanced capitalism, and it's not existentialist. And this is what it is. It's the Enlightenment. It's the Enlightenment, and I'll tell you what I mean. So, during this incredible moment, at the end of the 18th century, <clears throat> before and after the French Revolution, and before and after the American Revolution. And as people were being transported here in chains, um, but, you know, these winds of, of a, a sense of the universal human rights um, were influencing, you know, the, the way this, this culture grew up as well, something unbelievable was happening, and something more radical than I think has ever happened before in human history or since. And that this is that, you know, few people uh, created or set forth, or I would almost say channeled, but then I'm from California, um, <laughs> this amazing vision of universal human rights that are not bestowed by a king or a queen or an ideology or Chairman Mao or anyone else, but they descend from kind of, I mean, they're natural law. They call it natural law. They descend from, they, they would say from heaven or from God. But you could almost say if you don't believe in that, they descend from sort of the state of being human. The mere state of being human gives you these rights, according to the Enlightenment tradition. And that's why they refer to it as the rights of man. And that's why Mary Wollstonecraft referred to it as the rights of woman. And these rights, the way that these people talked about them are inalienable. You don't have to earn them. You don't, you can't lose them. Someone can't take them away. You know, you have this thing going on in Australia right now that scares the shit out of me. Pardon me, because I come from a country that's, you know, being subjected to, like, police state tactics day by day. I mean, I, I don't know if you know, but I was arrested in October for standing on a sidewalk in my home. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Let, let's, let's cheer after my court date tomorrow and I find out whether I'm going to be given 15 days in jail. Um, but thank you. It's, I'm glad they're, my, mother would, my mother's proud of me too. <laughs> but, um, but so in Australia, there's this, I, I can't warn you enough, and if there's media here, please take this warning and spread it. They want to put a government body in charge of your media, in charge of your free press and they're pretending it's for fairness. No good will come of this. No good will come of this. But this, thank you. So, so you, when you leave here, you fight them. But when you fight them, I'm gonna explain to you now why you will be doing a feminist thing, okay? Whether you're a man or a woman, that's a feminist thing, to fight for freedom of speech. Because the right to free speech the right to due process, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? The right to dignity, the right to equality. These are enlightenment ideals. And when people like Mary Wollstonecraft, who was the original enlightenment feminist, wrote a vindication of the rights of woman, she was taking these universalizing human rights ideals about freedom and putting them in the framework of gender. So I would say, that what we really need to do is to kind of identify where our intellectual inheritance in the West is limited, in a way, by these, these accidents of history, 
that it's so inflected by these kind of um, not perfect historical moments or theories and philosophies, right? A perfect idea. Feminism is a perfect idea, the equality of women with men, right? The, the right of women and men to these universal ideals of, of freedom and justice and equality. But we need to kind of go back to our source, which is the Enlightenment, which is Mary Wollstonecraft's feminism. And then you get a whole other kind of way of being as a feminist. Um, and it's an incredibly beautiful way of being. And it's also incredibly internally consistent. It's universally consistent. It's um, harmonious with other people's perspectives. And it uh, also is harmonious with the feminisms that are emerging around the rest of the world. And here's what I mean. I talk about the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment did happen in Western countries. But just like America's constitution, does Australia have a constitution? Thank you. It, listen, Britain doesn't have a constitution. You can't assume it, you know? Um, so just like America's constitution was adopted by people all over the world, because it's a universal thing, right? It belongs to everyone. So the Enlightenment is being claimed by people in Tahrir Square, by people in Bahrain, by people in Tunisia, people in Libya. The Enlightenment belongs to everybody. It's not a Western thing. And the people in you know, who are fighting for freedom in Tahrir Square are making their claim in language that, that, that they take from Tom Paine and Mary Wollstonecraft. And so when you reclaim this feminism, this, this uh, I call it enlightenment feminism, everything becomes fresh but coherent and also, um, what is the word, exciting. Because when you're in enlightenment feminism, uh, what happens is feminism is placed as a, a natural point on the whole spectrum of the global struggle for freedom and democracy. It orients feminism as being part of the clamor for self-determination and democracy that is going on now in Tahrir Square and Syria and Bahrain and Greece and Spain. Understood in that tradition, it's not a set of policy outcomes. I mean, we can all be Enlightenment feminists, men and women, and differ on how to run Australia, how to run the United States, right? That's good, right? That is good. Um, as long as we are all, you know, empowered with autonomy um, and self-determination. It doesn't say you must be pro-choice or vegetarian. It says you must be free. Thank you. It seeks, as the Enlightenment ideal did, for structures of government and society that lead to the fullest expression, not necessarily only of individual lifestyle choices, but self-determination on a deeper level. It sees the struggle for free speech and expression as an inherent part of feminism, because feminism, understood that way, simply says, just as all people must be free, women who are the majority of people must be free to speak as they wish, worship as they wish, determine governments as they wish, um, seeking representation to reflect their priorities in a democratic manner. This feminism is not, thank you. Thank you. I'm gonna wrap it up soon. This feminism is not special pleading or even partisan. I used to say feminism was the logical extension of democracy, but within this insight, I realize it is the very basis of true democracy. Yes. And this is why, because we are most of people. <laughs> and if the world is moving toward full democracy, if that's the great conflict, which I feel it is right now, these upsurges of democracy against this tiny corporate elite that's trying to oppress them, then feminism is the, the grounding of that push. Um, but as I said, it'll have many different policy outcomes. Victorian feminists made the mistake of saying you must sign on to our policy agenda or you're not part of the sisterhood. Marxist feminists made the mistake of saying you can't be real feminists unless you join with the vegans or the miners or the unions. Those are all great issues, but they are not this feminism's obvious coalition partners. They can be, but they're not on a theoretical level. I would say this feminism's coalition partner is the great movement for democracy and human rights around the world. This feminism, Enlightenment feminism, uh, says 
you can't be a real feminist unless you join with those fighting for democracy and freedom around the world. Democracy and freedom for the disabled, for journalists, for women who are trafficked, for indigenous peoples whose rights to protest over misuse of their lands are denied, for Bradley Manning, held for eight months in solitary confinement, for women, thank you, for women working in sweatshops in China who are forbidden to unionize or voice their complaints, for Chinese artist Ai Weiwei arrested for twittering about police abuse. Enlightenment feminism looks at how gender is used to silence and oppress women, but this is its matrix, the matrix of universal human rights. We get that? All right. Thank you. So three more minutes, because I'm sure you have questions. Now, global feminism, and this was my aha moment, global feminism understands this. That is why you will see emerging global feminist leaders fighting for economic rights in West Africa and to end genital mutilation in Mali and to publish blogs in Cairo and to bring traffickers to justice in Bosnia and so on, but they don't do it in the Western individualistic feminist frame. And they don't do it in the Victorian frame and they don't do it in the Marxist frame. Uh, they do it in the Enlightenment frame everybody's right to freedom and dignity. So they're not stumbling over, is it anti-male? Or is lesbian sexuality better than heterosexuality? Or must there be a conflict between my family and my autonomy? Or must I dress a certain way to be a feminist? Or reject religion or embrace religion? Very instructive to me is the image of scarved and bareheaded religious and secular young women fighting hard in Muslim countries for enlightenment freedom and enlightenment feminism without feeling that the headscarf or the religious affiliation divides them. Indeed, feminists in India, Pakistan, Bosnia, Liberia, and other developing or traditional societies are creating discourses about raising the status of women that are completely integrated within family and community life. Again, because they don't inherit the existentialist opposition between the two that we do. It's for this reason that I believe that enlightenment feminism as it's expressed in the developing world, has charm and excitement, cachet and intellectual vigor, and is immensely attractive to young women. While feminism in the West, which is not generally articulated as enlightenment feminism, is fairly static and intellectually stale at the moment. The human rights democracy enlightenment frame that underlies global feminism means a truly radical future. It makes the case, 350 years old, that every single person on the planet, male or female, has God-given rights to raise his or her own voice and determine his or her own destiny. Who wouldn't like this definition of feminism? Who wouldn't want to embrace it, male or female? If we redefine or go back to defining our feminism to that way, we will immediately be far more relevant, far smarter in our discussions and debates, and far more powerful. Uh, we as Western women will be aligned rather than at cross purposes with the cutting edge feminisms emerging in the rest of the world, and we can lay to rest forever the absurd notion that feminism is anti-male or posits a war between the sexes. And we can get on with the exciting task um, which Mary Wollstonecraft envisioned uh, almost 250 years ago of engendering freedom. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. God, that is one of the most terrifying things I've ever done. Thank you so much. I just want to say it's so great to hear Mary Wollstonecraft brought up in a feminist context. I remember when I was like 16, my mum went back to university and she, got me, she gave that to me to read. And it was so exciting. Yeah. And it still is. If you do have a question, and I'm sure there are many, make your way to one of the microphones now. The conversation that a friend of mine and I were having earlier today was exactly what you've just been saying. And my question is, um, is it time to actually start involving men in this conversation about yes. human rights and yes. rights? Yes, 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 right? I, I, I think mean, so. I mean, I guess what the thing about this particular insight, and it's so brand new. I mean, I literally wrote this this morning, and I'm trembling, you know. Um, but the thing about this uh, kind of getting through to this place is that everything we need to do kind of becomes obvious. 
Like, if you're coming from a democracy, human rights perspective, aren't men human? Oh, yeah. Um. I mean, it doesn't, right? <laughs> I know there's been some debate about that in feminism at certain points, but um, no, I, I guess all I mean is, like, the question, when we don't have this grounding theoretically, we get very wrapped up in, well, if we, you know, if men are at the Take Back the Night March, we'll lose our safe space or whatever. And I get that women need, who are traumatized especially, you know, need some safe spaces. But we're, that's not all we are, right? And if you, in the, you're in this enlightenment space, then you can call attention to gender inequities, you can fight for gender inequities. You're not going to be knocked off your focus on gender inequities just because you're talking to another human being who might have another experience of the fight for human rights from a gender perspective, right? We're all informing each other in this fight. Does that make sense? Yeah. I find when I'm just talking to friends, particularly a group of male friends, that they seem overly concerned with some of the negative stigmas attached to feminism. And what are some of your tips to just try to dissolve that, just when you're having a discussion? Right. I mean, I'm sorry to say, did everyone hear this very good question? They're all good questions. You know, I'm sorry to say that everyone, but it's also kind of exciting, we're moving into a time in which everyone needs to be a journalist, everyone needs to be a publicist, everyone needs to be a lobbyist, a politician, a block, you know, like, it, it's up to you to define feminism for these guys, right? And so, I would say you have to be really patient and try to meditate and not get defensive and, and just engage in listening to what they think feminism is and acknowledge, you know, I mean, a beautiful thing about media training is that you, there's something called hit bridge sparkle and you, acknowledge something really confrontational that's coming your way, and then you bridge to where you want to sparkle, right? <laughs> and so you could say, yes, I understand that in the media, sometimes it's represented as women hating men, or there were a couple of you know, writers in the 80s who said that all sex is rape. That's true, but that's not the main thrust of this movement, and the main thrust, and then you define it yourself. And I'm sure that you're so smart, as we all are, that the way you define it will be very reasonable to these guys. And so, like, why I was praising Clem, you know, on my Facebook community, people were like, what do you mean slut walk? That's so bad. And I'm like, wait, they'll teach people what it means. Like, Victorian feminism underestimates our ability to teach people our power as teachers. And so year two, a lot more people get what slut walk means. It's about empowering women, right? It's about rejecting the idea of a, a slut as a, as a way to divide women or shame them. Um, and so by the same token, you have so much power to educate these guys and teach them, share books with them, role model to them, um, welcome them. I mean, I would always say welcome them. The unfortunate thing, and I'm, I'm ashamed of it, is that sometimes Western feminism has not been uh, inclusive and, and welcoming to men. And that's not right, because any human rights movement, you know, we're all part of one family, we're in this together. And so it is up to us to welcome and invite men into this task. It doesn't mean seeding, you know, our agenda. It means um, knowing that we're in this together. Yeah. But I, I, I'm sure you can do it. I'm going to ask a question before I go to number two. What would you? Um, what is your approach then to what I think happens quite a bit now, where men have been welcomed into feminist spaces, and uh, quite often men who self-identify as feminists will now come into a feminist space and tell women how to do feminism? <laughs> <laughs> which I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, which, which happens, I guess, yeah. um, probably a bit more online. I think. Yeah. I think that there's there's something about that lack of a right. of a, of a um, a kind of barrier to discussion online. Where I mean, what does your button say? <laughs> what well, says, shut up, dick. <laughs> I mean... And I'd also like to thank Naomi for lending me this belt to hold my radio mic. Feminist accessorising is an important issue. Um, I mean, so here's what I want to say about that. I, I hear this a lot, mm. and it's true. Um, men have been raised in the West to be very assertive with their voices. Women generally haven't. I spent like a decade teaching young women how to speak more assertively um, in this leadership institute I co-founded. But what I would say is just uh, what I think you guys need to do, what we all need to do, again, abandoning this Victorian model of, oh no, he's interrupting me or he's, you know, 
big or he's tall or he's talking down to me, he's condescending to me. They do all of that. They can't help themselves, you know, in some ways. But it's our job to teach ourselves and each other how to stand firm. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, you know, give other people a chance to talk. Or, you know, thank you for your ideas. Melissa, what do you want to say? Um, and I also have to say that I think, like, a thousand flowers. I do believe there's space, as I said before, for men-only groups and women-only groups. And if you need time to have women-only strategizing, women-only discussion, uh, women-only you know, intimate talk about sexual trauma or whatever, you know, have it by all means, but we have to get better at fighting with men. And I mean that lovingly, fighting constructively, uh, holding our own, arguing back, interrupting back, not being silenced, right? If we're gonna... Thank you. Now, just before I go on, I think your button is funny, but I wouldn't necessarily advocate saying that to a human being because it's disrespectful. And something that, no, seriously, you know, shut up, cunt. I mean, right? I mean, I'm just like surfacing it. I mean, we, how can I put this? It is so hard right now, but so important for all of us to learn how to disagree very, very passionately. Well, uh, arguing about the issue, but not engaging in personal attacks, and arguing about the issue while still being respectful of one another. Yeah. In order to recognize the way feminism, the definition and the name of feminism, how it's changed from first and second wave, um, would we, would there, in order to recognize that change, would we, would it be called by any other name or like any other reference? Um, to quote Romeo and Juliet, would a rose by any other name smell as sweet? Right. I, that's, these are such great questions and I love it that you guys are really, you guys and women, sometimes people don't like that phrasing, you, all of you, you're thinking very, very, um, you're grappling with these very deep theoretical issues because we really do need, as you're, you're doing, to go back to kind of the origins and look at them. I feel that I'd rather people did feminism than get hung up on what it's called. Having said that, um, the, a word like feminism, like a word like democracy, is incredibly valuable. Uh, words that have a history can be very, very valuable for being kind of shorthand for communicating a whole 200 years or 250 years or 1,000 years of an idea. So I like reclaiming. I mean, that's why I like what Clem did with Slut Walk. You know, I like saying, you know what, we have the power to redefine the word. If feminism has been defined negatively, if you look at women's history, it's not the first time. In 1919, the phrase post-feminism was coined because the backlash then persuaded young women that they were all a bunch of hairy, you know, man-haters, and there was no point to it. So every generation, you have to reclaim it. But I, again, I have so much power in you doing that. So I would say, reclaim it, but don't get hung up on it. You know, like I've spent, yeah. It, it's helpful for me. When I wrote The Beauty Myth, everyone had written off the word feminism, and I found it very helpful to spend, you know, two decades, I mean, it's kind of taxing, saying, you know what, feminism means this, feminism means this to me. But all of you have so much power to go out there, as you doubtless are doing, and saying, it means this to me. And your role models, you know, when you go out there and say, someone says, well, you know, feminists can't wear makeup or whatever bullshit, you know, mythology is current as it always is, you can say, well, here's, X, you know, I think women can dress any way they want and wear whatever they want. Or if people say, well, you can't be a feminist and like men, you can, whatever. You know what all the stupid, boring, you know, things are that people say. You have a lot of power to change that. Yeah. Question from number four. Four. I noticed that you were critical of existentialism for being too individualistic. Um, my concern is that enlightenment thinking as it's come down into Western society, is also very individualistic. It's the, it's the inspiration, in a sense, much more than existentialism, for Western individualism. Right. And so I'm, I'm wondering if, if we're sharing those kind of concerns, that we need to find some kinds of solidarity-based or social-based or um, intellectual feminist heritage to add into the... You know, the, yeah, the intellectual um, inspiration for this kind of feminism right. that you're talking a about. Another fantastic question. And I mean, this is why I knew, 
This is why I knew that, that Sydney was a fantastic place to roll out these ideas, because you guys get right into it. Um, so let me clarify, because um, if, if that's, that's, a, that's a, something I need to um, correct and strengthen then in this piece, if that's <clears throat> the impression that you were left with. Um, I do love Enlightenment individualism, because I do believe that in a truly just society, each of us will be respected as individuals, as well as as members of community. I think human beings need both, right? And I would like to stress that I am scared by collectivism. Um, very nervous about it. And I don't mean communitarianism. Communities are great. Collectivism freaks me out. Collectivism is people saying, this is what you have to think, this is how many children you have to have, you can have an abortion, you can't have an abortion, you can worship this God, you can't worship that God. Um, so when I, I'm not attacking individualism, I'm attacking nihilism, individualistic nihilism. The trouble with existentialism, I mean, existentialism is useful, right? Uh, to get people to the 20th century. We couldn't have gotten here without it. But the downside is it sees someone as only an autonomous self. So your relationships to other people don't exist. Whereas I think the Enlightenment ideal, it's, if you read Jefferson or Franklin or Mary Wollstonecraft, it's all about the individual in relation to a family, in relation to you know, teachers and students, in relationship to community, in relationship to nature, in relationship to children. And that's the beauty of the kinds of feminisms that are emerging, for instance, in the Muslim world. They're very much about a woman has a right to express her gifts, speak her voice, but a woman or a man are also connected to others in these very profound ways. So is, is that clear? I mean, I, I do believe a balance is, is very necessary, but I believe that in a really free society, um, you know, the, the right of the individual to think what he or she wants to think and say what he or she wants to say has to come before anyone telling you how to relate to other people. Unfortunately, we've run out of time for more questions, though I think that's a fantastic note to end on, and hopefully we'll see some of you later in the afternoon, you can kind of transmute your questions to suit the F-word forum, but please put your hands together for and the inimitable so Mamie Wolf. Thank you so much. Thank you. thank you. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'll see you later. Thank you. Thank you.